fitting to remember uh, his death on our behalf uh, this morning following the first chapter of the book of Ruth. So as you make your way to Ruth, uh, we will make our way into the presence of God and ask him for his blessing. Now, Father, we pray with a new book, a new setting, a new time, place, a new theme. Father, prepare our hearts for this life-changing saga, this journey this family takes, and we're going to learn some pretty invaluable insights, what not to do, mostly here in uh, the first chapter. But Lord, even, even when we take missteps, Father, you're so good about your grace and your mercy covering us and treating us better than we deserve, and we're certainly going to see that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, I was cycling along Fought Road. It's up by Shiloh Park where we live. And um, I was along that long stretch of vineyards there. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. And I was just n- noticing that there's, uh, man, it, it is, uh, by the look of the vines, the condition of the vines, you always know what season of life you're in. And for sure, I was made aware that winter is here. The lush green foliage has gone and given way to a few brown leaves that are managing to cling, a few of them anyway. Most of them are on the ground. And for sure, summer is gone, autumn is passing away, and winter is closing in. And I was thinking as I was riding along that God and his wisdom incorporated seasons into his creation, knit them into the fabric of life because they're such a great sermon illustration. Now, we didn't have seasons before the fall because it was one season uh, called paradise. And in paradise, you don't have bitter cold where everything dies. And so... After the fall, we have seasons to remind us of the gospel, of death and resurrection, of God's love coming down to melt and thaw our frozen hearts that had been estranged from him, that through the gospel, our souls might bud and blossom in hopeful colors of spring and lead us from death and barrenness where there's no fruit on the vine. There just seems, everything seems lifeless and dead. The gospel comes into that place and brings lush, green, vibrant, healthy, fruitful life. And uh, that culminates, of course, when we see him as we sang about face to face. Uh, No more storms, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Until then, we have seasons, not only on earth, but seasons of the soul. Winters 
on the inside. No fun, even for a believer. Winters, when things just get harsh and barren and cold and the green leaves go away and everything's naked and raw and awful. Those are seasons that the Puritans used to call losses and crosses to bear. Now, uh, the winter of the soul for the believers, by no means comfortable, but if it's handled properly, biblically, with a heart that can during those frosty times, walk wisely, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Those winters of our souls can be beneficial and they can be helpful and they can be short-lived if you handle it properly. Now, there's a wrong way of handling the season of winter when it comes your way of loss or barrenness or whatever it may be that will actually make things worse. You'll prolong winter by hardening your heart and looking to find comfort and relief in ways outside of God's will. And that's exactly what happens in Ruth chapter one. Winter comes in quite literally a lack of famine. And the family, the star of chapter uh, one, is going to take matters into their own hands instead of sitting and waiting it out, trusting God and staying within the boundary lines. They're going to do their own thing and go outside the boundary. And when you go outside God's ordained way of finding what the human soul needs, you will never, ever be blessed. Let me introduce you to that family right now, Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled back before the kings, There was a famine in the land, a winter of the soul, as I've been saying. And a man from Bethlehem, ironically, means house of bread. (laughs) A man of Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, Israel's enemies. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites. Uh, The name of Bethlehem, before it became Bethlehem, was Ephra. And so, it's just an early name. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Judah is the region. And they went to Moab, the place of God's enemies, and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died there, and she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women. Now, could you tell by the tone of my voice that that was not the right thing to do? (laughs) What? They married uh, Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, that's a long little while, both Malin and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab 
that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left that, the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead, your husbands, my boys, and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi says, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? What? Okay, you live in Israel in a place of blessing, and you're, you're asking these two Moabite girls, why in the world would they want to go with you, to the God of Israel? Okay, am I... <laughs> I'm okay. I try to usually resist my little inward dialogues, but I couldn't right there. I was like, come on, lady, what's going on here? Return home. Why would you want to come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? <laughs> would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. We're all going to die. <laughs> all right. Oh, she went through a lot. So, you know, at this, they wept again. You know, they're ladies. And they just... just <laughs> You know, I should have learned first service. <laughs> Stop. We have Kleenexes here, ladies. I'm just surprised. I, I digress, but just come on. The girls are so different than guys. We cry like twice in our lives, okay? It's when dad dies and, and the truck goes out and uh, our dog, right? And the kids, uh, the ladies, wear something sparkly today. Wear something sparkly. You know, when guys get together, wear your best jeans. <laughs> All right. So, if you're listening by podcast, my apologies. <laughs> Verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth... She clings to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. What? <laughs> Next. But Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And now little did she know how famous her loving dedication commitment will be. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I'm gonna stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God, I'm tired of this godless place. I want what you have. Where you die, I'm going to die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, covenant name, all caps, Yahweh or Yehovah, 
may your God, this God that I don't know yet fully, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. She's serious. <laughs> Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. A sign of good news right there at the end. Samuel wants you to know that. Samuel is writing and recording the book of Ruth. Thank you for the verses. And so we see now our text in front of us. We're going to walk through it. The first of four chapters of a four-chapter book, the book of Ruth. Now, as most of you realize that though it starts kind of on the basement floor by the end of the four chapters, we are in the heights of heaven, we are going to Bethlehem, and we are in the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's quite a journey, but it does start out a bit uh, on the negative side. And we learn from vicariously, we learn through their mistakes. I don't know about you. I would rather learn vicariously through someone else's mistake. You see somebody taking a hammer to their head, you know, and just, you know, by looking and watching, you go, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea. I, I would rather learn that way than actually be the dude who's doing that. And so we're going to see this family take a few missteps and we're going to go, aha, you know, I'm tempted to think like that. And I'm struggling with some of that, but now that you flush that out and show it to me in living color in God's word, I don't want anything to do with that because it doesn't lead to the right kind of life God uh, desires for me, you see? So there's some benefit in starting a little bit in, in the negative. And so actually, as I said, alluded to, it is the story behind Christmas is perfect for Advent. So let's dive in. Uh, lesson number one, each chapter sort of has a lesson. And chapter, this chapter is when you fall into hard times, the last thing you ever want to do is disregard God and his will in your effort to find comfort, relief, or provision. You see, um, I have written down here how to make a hard time even harder. We don't want to do that. But that's exactly what happens here. It's exactly the lesson. Follow in their footsteps and make your winter six months longer or 10 years longer. Who's ever heard of winter lasting 10 years? Well, it can. It can last longer than 10 years. It's up to you to speed it along and bring in the springtime by you cooperating with a God who loves springtime. And a God who uses the affliction and winter to short, 
just short, to help us, to get our attention to grow. So that's the short-term lesson here before us. And now in the chapter we just read, three things to pay attention to. They are negatives, right? Vicarious learning through another person's uh, messing up, if you will. So first we're going to see the, the wayward direction they take. Come on. They're living in the promised land, and they're going to go try to answer the problem outside of the boundaries of promise and in a land of enemies, the wayward direction. And then we're gonna go into the wrong motive. There is a turnaround, thankfully. Naomi gets on the right road, but I don't know if you caught it. It's not exactly a noble um, motivation. And uh, you could tell her attitude has got some struggle in it. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, And that's our last point. The worst attitude in the world for a believer. So the wayward decision, the wrong motivation, and the worst attitude if you're taking notes. Let's focus in on verses 1 through 5. Now in front of you where we get the time, the date, the situation, and what led a nice Jewish family, a Hebrew family, to leave the land of promise of Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go cross over the border into the land of the enemy, a foreign country, to emigrate there in modern-day Jordan or ancient-day Moab. The time's very important, and it starts out in the days when the judges ruled. For 480 years, Israel was without a king and everybody was doing their own thing. You'll remember during that period, the two most famous judges uh, were Gideon and Samson. Very dark days and the, the Jews were doing whatever they felt like doing, worshiping idols, being sexually immoral, ignoring God and his commands, disobeying and all of that. And this 480-year cycle over and over again, so it was a crazy cycle, you know? So they were blessed, but then in their blessing, they would forget God, do whatever they wanted. And then God would bring the hammer or the paddle, right? And then the enemy would sweep in, and they had no king, they had no leader, and so God would raise up a judge, right? And, And he would bring deliverance. And then because they repented, they cried out, Right, but then the crazy cycle again. They would just get careless and lazy in their prosperity and then forsake God, worship idols, do all the wrong things, and then God had to bring the chastisement over and go. This is the time of the judges, and it's very important for you to understand because you're wondering, did they do the right thing? I mean, they were starving, but they had to find food. So should you leave the promised land and go over to enemy territory? Well, that doesn't sound right, but how do we know they did the wrong thing? Let me show you the last verse of Judges, which is the the last verse right before the first verse of Ruth. Watch, here we go. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, let me give you an example of that. Ruth chapter one, verse one. There's an ouch, there's a pinch, there's a need. My two boys are tired of of white bread sandwiches with mayonnaise, right? And so this is what's going on there exactly. And, uh, you know, thank you, 
Samuel ever so helpful uh, that now we understand. There was no king, no right or wrong, no moral direction, no leader. Everybody's just doing life the way they feel like it. Uh, You know what? God gave them boundaries. They said, no, 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 no. We'll identify as we wish to identify. That's called relativism. What's right for you isn't right for me. You call yourself A, B, and C. I call myself C, D, and F. You know, that's the world they lived in then that contributed to their misstep to leave the land of God's people, God's word, the worship of God, the promises of God, the place where they had crossed into from slavery. God took them up the the same place they're going backwards to find the answers. You will never, Christian, you will never find any answers, joy, contentment, provision, or blessing going backwards. Let me show you the map. It's crazy. Here's where they lived, in Bethlehem. Here's where, how they had to get over. They had to go north. It's 200 miles, a trip. They had to go north. They had to cr- cut over at Jericho. Jericho's the gate in that God said, hey, I'm taking you to a land of milk and honey. You'll, ne- you, you'll never be in want as long as, Deuteronomy 28, as long as you walk with me, as long as you love me, you put me first, you're not ignoring me and breaking my commands and living like a nasty Canaanite whom I evicted in judgment. And so he brings them out of slavery up through that pass and and now they're exiting from a land that God swore to provide everything they need. That's crazy. But he says in Deuteronomy 28, and by the way, if you think you can kind of sin, do your thing, have your cake and eat it too, he says then, and I'm quoting from Deuteronomy 28, the skies above will be brass doors shut, no rain. And the ground beneath you, hard as iron. I'll bring winter of the soul, in other words, to get your attention, to call you back, to say, hey, You're destroying yourself. You're unplugging from me. You're going down a road that's a dead end. You'll plant vineyards. You won't enjoy the fruit. The olives will drop to the ground before your greedy little idolatrous fingers can get to them. And that's exactly what he says. So the very reason for the famine is in their own hearts and life. And instead of saying, honey, Deuteronomy 28 tells us why famine would come to God's own household. It's he's getting our attention because there's murder and corruption and lying and cheating and slandering and sexual immorality and worshiping at the Canaanite God's idols. Let's be part of the answer Let's confess our sins, honey. Let's wait on the Lord. Let's get right with God and help our friends and our family and the congregation of Israel. Let's not leave and just say, you know, what seems right for me and my family. Take care of number one first, but let's be the people of God and and pray and seek and work through this and sit tight. Stay the course and not stray off course. 
just because there's some pinching and loss and some owie. And so you, you got turned upside down. Whoa, I didn't see a famine coming. No, we didn't see the fire coming. No, we didn't see the crime coming. We didn't see it. But how are you going to handle it? Chapter 1 shows you, you will either get bitter and confused and lost and isolated, or you will get sweeter and blessed and softer and more humble. The choice will be yours and mine. And so they, they chose the, the, the stray and pay option. Because when you stray, you pay instead of staying and praying, right? So Eliminech and Naomi, Eliminech, come on, dude, what's your name? His name means my king. And so instead of turning to the Lord, my king, there's famine. And I know what your word says about famine. You're trying to get my attention. There's sin. We're falling short. We got to come together. We got to sit tight and trust you within the boundaries, you're my king. He didn't live up to his name. And he was king. And he did what was right in his own eyes. The problem with that is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21. I think it's verse 12. I don't want to lead you astray. <laughs> verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Times three, death to Eliminech, death to Killian, death to Malon, Malan. You see, that's what was happening. They go through the exit out of God's will and nothing good. Now, when tragedy strikes, you know, who's to say what exactly is going on? So hard to discern, isn't it? But many times we know, oh, wow, God is trying to get my attention and do something redemptive. And the problem is never in God. And so, but we can see pretty clearly that because they took this misstep and did things, you know, the way that seems right to a man, it led to death. And so now we've got three nice Jewish boys <laughs> Sons of the law, related to God's heroes, the Bible, the, the blessing of God was upon them, buried in the soils of Moab, and God calls it his wash basin. Moab is my wash bucket. It's a derogatory term there in the Psalms. Psalm 60, God speaking first person, and he says, Moab's my little wash tub. He means his enemies are just useful for him to stick his feet down there and just kind of wash off his feet on Moab. And this is where they think they're going to find some blessing. And they're buried not in the promised land, not next to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not in Bethlehem where they're from, but they're buried in Moab. Wow. Really, really sad. Moab, man, Moab. Moab, if you're taking notes, Numbers 23, Numbers 25, Deuteronomy 23. They're sworn enemies. They seduced Israel into idolatry. God said, if a, Moab, a Moabite comes and they're not repented, oh, they have nothing to do. They can't even come into the congregation. 
unrepented, right? And so instead of finding relief, they increased their suffering. Instead of finding a way out, they hit a dead end, literally. Instead of making things a little bit better, they make them a whole lot worse. So here's the lesson. Difficult times, sit tight. You're a Christian. You have a name. What does your name mean? It means little Christ. You're a Christian. My king, your king, is God who can feed you in famine. My word, Elijah was right where he should have been in the heat of a big famine. And God says, no worries, man, because you're praying, because you're right, because you're sitting tight and not fleeing to some some place you think is going to be better, change of scenery. He commands the ravens to feed him every day. God would have made a way, but Elimelech forfeited all of that by taking their destiny in their own hands. So God, we got this promised land. You dried up the promised land, so we're going to go over to Moab and check check those fields out. And what do you get in Moab? Those are the fields that you're going to be buried in. Yikes. So, You get the setting. (laughs) Time to head in the right direction with with an ignoble motive, the wrong motive. But uh, you know, for me, I'd rather limp in the right direction than run full body in the wrong, amen? So let's take a look at that. They turn around. It's a lot of dialogue, so there'll be two slides, but, but Pastor Adam will follow me through. When she hears in Moab that the Lord has come to the aid of her people, Naomi and the daughter-in-law is prepared to return, and, and, and she's really convinced that she needs to dissuade them because she's so caught up in her own grief, her own situation, her own life. She cannot see past her own need. And then uh, she becomes quite bitter. And it it goes on like that. We're going to walk through it. So no worries. Uh, And that uh, Orpah will will say, okay, enough. Yes, I get it. I'm going home. All right. Ready. Ruth will cling and then make her her famous declaration. So let's take a closer look now. Um, Time to return. Sadly, it's all about the food and not about her faith. That's crazy to me. Okay, so God knows how we are. If he can't get you to hear your conscience screaming, then he'll make sure you hear your tummy growling. Okay, so, and that's how we are. He whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts to us in our pain, C.S. Lewis. Trying to get her attention. Oh, how fabulous it would have been if you would have read, my daughters, listen to me. My husband and I, we should never have crossed out of the promised land. We left our people, we left our Lord, we left our country, we left our Bible, we left everything and came to God's enemies. And quite frankly, girls, though I love you to pieces, my boys, it's against God's law for us to marry Moabites. And so because of our own missteps, listen to me, because of what we did, we hit a brick wall and we have suffered, but I'm done with it. Now, girls, 
I'm going to take you not to Chemosh, the god Molech, their god, receives the firstborn of all the families. They have a sibling who was offered into the heated fires of Chemosh, the god of Moab. Instead of turning you back to your mother's houses where there's no life, there's no hope, there's no God, come with me to the promised land. Come with me to a place that flows with milk and honey. And surely there'll be food there because I'm anguished at my own stupidity, my own foolish ways. But I love you girls. Come, let me give you all the reasons to come with me. Come with me. Come meet Yahweh. Come have hope. Get out of the wash bucket. But no, she does the exact opposite and lists all the reasons why they should go back to Chemosh and back to the homes where nobody knows God. Nobody's going to heaven there. And all the disadvantages of coming with her to the promised land. And that's, my friend, what happens when we get self-absorbed and we don't handle her legitimate, heartbreaking. She's lost her husband and she lost her boys. She's lost everything. We don't begrudge her any of that. But what is necessary is that we handle our winter season, our losses and our crosses correctly, or if we melt them and nurse, nurse the grudges and the hurts and the bitterness and we keep lists of all the things God has done to us wrong, then you're not going to be any help to Orpah or to Ruth. Ruth comes in spite of her bitterness and her Three times, go home, go home. Look at your sister-in-law. She went home to her gods, you go too. And then Ruth, because here's the difference between Ruth and Orpah. Ruth has a relationship of sorts starting. She has genuine faith. And when you have a spark of genuine faith that can be born in the wash bucket of Moab, you will not rest until that faith brings you fully into the presence and the love and the joy of your God, the object of true, genuine faith. And she swears in God's name, may he strike me severely if, if I depart and I lose this opportunity to join my soul. So tired of Chemosh and the Moabites and sexual immorality and abuse and vulgarity and emptiness and isolation and loneliness. I want what you have. Faith can see past her brokenness, her grief handled incorrectly, her bitterness, and true faith will jump even the, um, the weakness and the bad presentation of a true believer. She, that Ruth, she's coming. No problem. She wants to meet the Lord. She wants to be a part of the people of God. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we're not by how we handle our loss and our pain, discouraging others uh, around us. Amen? Amen. 
that when, you know, bitterness, here's what she says, from her own mouth, not mine. She says, I've become a bitter woman. Her name, Naomi, it means pleasant. It means sweetie. It's almost a nickname, like calling someone sweetie pie. That's what Naomi means. And it's a choice to go from Naomi, the blessings of God, the joy of God, the, 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 the sweetness of his love. It's a choice every single time. Winter or no, to end up going to Mara, where that word means bitter or acrid or poison. It's a choice that she has. You know people who have been through things that make your head spin and they're sweet, they're humble, it softened them because why? They made choices. They did the spiritual disciplines, not to nurse the grudges and hold on, but they let go and they allowed God to come in and take those things and they humbled themselves. I think of my wife. She was a young girl. Her parents split. She, there was a Christian home there, but it split, and the home that she stayed in was, uh, uh, was now atheist. And there was a stepfather. And this little girl decided to go to church on her own, walking to the closest neighborhood Baptist church when she was eight years old. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, the stepfather says, I forbid you to go out. You think the whole world revolves around you and that God you serve. I forbid you go to your room as a young teen. And she went to her room and she knelt and prayed and opened the Bible. She became a sweet woman. She doesn't have a list of all the abuse and the drunken stepfather and the locking me in the room story. You don't ever hear that. It's a choice. Or you meet the person who in 10 seconds will tell you every bad thing that's ever happened. Well, you know what? The good thing that happened in Christ to her displaced all of that. And instead of the drunken stepfather, it's the gracious heavenly father who sweetens your soul. And it's whatever memory you choose to live under, to stay close to, you will either be Naomi's sweetness or you will be Mara. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. We were watching a show. One of those I survived. Normally, I can't watch it because it just gets too evil. And something so evil, I will not even hint at what she went through with her babies. The loss of life, un- unbelievable. And she's beaming, telling the story, and I'm just thinking, how could you ever, I I can't understand how you could be sweet. And she says, God, on screen, God got me through that. And God showed me that there's more to life than evil. There's good, and he's been good to me. And now I have this new family. And she just, it was like, wow, the work of God. But it was a choice on her part. And it's a choice on yours that you're either reliving 
and nursing and living in that. And here's the deal. Hebrews says, and here's how you know it's a choice. Hebrews says, see to it, Christian, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up, springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. That's the deal. He wouldn't tell you not to do something if it weren't your choice. It's your choice. The season of winter's upon you. You're gonna go cold and sour and bitter and start blaming God for everything and making your list. And you will defile and cause trouble for many. And, and she doesn't know she's doing it. That's the problem with bitterness. You poison everybody around you. And you tell two unbelieving girls from Moab that God is out to get me. Is that really the message of the Bible? God isn't out, about to, out to get you, Naomi. He's going to bless you so much in two, three, and four. You're not going to know which way is up. You are going to be stunned by what God has planned. Very different than her negativity for sure. And so, but, but Ruth says, hey, where you go, I'm going. <laughs> where you stay, me too. Your people, oh yeah, I want your people over my people any day. Your God will be mine for sure. And so they walk on out of Moab toward Jerusalem. Ruth is hopeful and joyful. And Naomi is fatalistic, bitter the whole way. Now, uh, when I preach, I'm preaching to me as well. The word of God uh, has to first go through the, the pastor's own heart and life uh, for it to be of any worth because uh, I'm not preaching for your benefit alone, but I, I'm a Christian as well and I need the word of God. So I write down things for me. So I'll gladly just share so far. I just wrote some things for Ross and I just wrote, Ross, are you letting... Hardship make you bitter or better? Is your soul sweeter or softer or poisoned with bitterness? Uh, is your testimony, God is for me, God is good even though? Or is it God has done me wrong? Are you uplifting and inspiring people in, in the way you handle your troubles? or hindering them and giving them yet another reason to stick with the God Kimosh. That's your choice. That's what happens. Or you say, well, you don't understand, and I've been through all of this. What you're doing, sir or ma'am, is stumbling somebody else. It's never just about you. So think long and hard about the condition of your heart in light of your troubles and how you deal with them. Well, we're not done, and so there's more information here. Let's finish up now. She's, uh, she has turned around uh, for the wrong reason, right? For the food. That's the funny thing, just for the food. But listen, like the prodigal son, the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, he's at the end. He's hungry. He doesn't say to himself, I broke my dad's heart. My mom's crying herself to sleep at night. I hurt the heart of God and broke all his commands, therefore I'm going back. No. He says, I'm hungry. And we serve a God that says, hey, however you come to me, I'm going to love on you and receive you 
What a blessing. What a wonderful God we serve. Amen? Amen. Well, let's finish up here with now um, the worst attitude that you could ever have as it is modeled here by Miss Sweetie Pie. All right. So when sweetness realizes that Ruth is coming, come hell or high water, she stopped urging her, finally... So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. They get there, and the town is excited, and they come out. Now, listen to me. Instead of a cause of celebration, here's the family. Back in those days, you're knit together, man. You're God's people, God's fellowship, right? And they departed for 10 long years, and and they come back. Cause, listen, a cause for celebration. No, an opportunity to complain and to give a testimony that makes God look bad. What a downer. Everybody came, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now the first thing I want you to notice is they pull up at the station, they get off the bus as it were. And, and now the root of bitterness is gonna spring up and start its nasty work of deflecting blame away from their own missteps, uh, defaming God, and discouraging others. So here, here's the first question. They look at her countenance. Now, 10 years pass. You don't change that much. Yes, you change in 10 years. But her countenance threw them, took them aback and said, sweetie, I mean, sweetie, you know? They looked at a countenance that looked like they'd been soaking in pickle juice for 10 years. <laughs> you know, the look. Oh, man, alive. They said, could this even be sweetie, sweetie, sweetie? You know, (laughs) that's what was going on because she looked like, whoa, one wrong move and Mount Everest is going to blow, you know? Well, little did you know that it was a volcano. (laughs) I just wanted to pass that along to you. Something I read in National Enquirer, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Ten, <laughs> that's a delayed laugh there. Uh, ten, ten years of bitterness has taken its toll on her face, and it's confirmed by what comes out of her mouth. She says, oh, don't call me sweetie. Don't call me sweetie. Call me bitter, because God's made me bitter. It's exactly what she says, exactly what she says. So here's what 10 years of without church, without the word of God, without fellowship, without home fellowship groups, without sitting under a teacher, a God-appointed teacher who's gifted and able to take the scriptures with the Holy Spirit's help and put it before you and make a difference in your life instead of these other things we do. 10 years of that, this is what you get. You get a warped view of who God is and his plan for your life, and you're not a lot of good. In fact, people at the bus station there, they have to trip over. They came like, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and they're going to get stumbled by it. Don't call me, sweetie. I've been through a lot, and God's to blame. And now they have to kind of step over because you hear the story. It's like, oh, God did what? You know, even the most mature believer, I'm a mature believer, but when I hear a, a, a testimony that attributes 
terrible things to God, I start having to, to, to think through and do some work up here. And that's what she is. She's stumbling people. She doesn't mean to do it. She just caught up in herself. She says, let's fact check her, okay? I went away full, she says, and the Lord brought me back empty. Actually, darling, we've checked. We have the text. You did not go away full. You went away empty. You went away with nothing. You went away with uh, empty stomachs. You went away with crying babies. You went away when you shouldn't have gone away. You went away and you hitched your son's carts to the enemy of the Lord your God. You don't go away full. You went away empty and now you didn't come back empty. You come back full. The blessing of God on your life that he sustained your life. He got you 200 miles as a woman traveling with another woman through those rocky places where robbers and bandits and all kinds of murderers live. And not only that, he's given you, blessed you with a daughter-in-law like Ruth, a Bible hero, who loves you even though you got a spirit of Eeyore about you <laughs> and has sworn to God to, live, to leave her family, her country, her gods. Why? Out of her love for you. So instead of getting off the bus and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I take full responsibility. What were we thinking? We left the promised land. We try to find in the enemy territory what only God promised us. And yet I went away empty. And look, the Lord has brought me back full with this beautiful, God-fearing woman who left the wash buckets of Moab and her God, and she wants to kind of find refuge under the wings of Jehovah, our God. Yes, I left empty, but I come back with God's blessing full. Oh, yeah. But those who like to live in bitterness will never see that. And then everybody would have been inspired, encouraged in the faith, lifted up, drawn closer to God instead of having to do the work. Now, wait a second. I know that God is for us. Who could be against us? Uh, you, you know, in him is only light. There's no darkness at all. And having to, because of your inability to let go and let God, as it were, they're stumbled they're compromised when they didn't have to be. So this is huge. And, and you know, notice it closes out Samuel and the Holy Spirit. Wow. Just says, closes out with Naomi's bad attitude. Uh, but uh, we get a glimpse of, by the way, Samuel says, it's um, time to harvest the barley. And every Jew in the place went, oh, Passover. It means Passover. Oh, now this will explain, and the worship team, come on up here, because we're going to head into Passover time, just how it works with the Lord. The only way that God can take the Mara in us 
and turn it into sweetness and then pour blessing after blessing after blessing upon us, even though we're ungrateful and, and uh, witness of him in inaccurate and misrepresent his character and live less than we should? How is it that he can just dump all these royal blessings on us? Well, it's barley harvest time and Passover, and there's blood in the story. There's blood of a sacrifice that paid for the sins that she's committing and that we will commit. So I've got some questions for you. Go ahead, you can pick around. (laughs) Oh, isn't that much better? Yeah. And I ask you something. Listen, bitterness is hard for people. Because once you are served by bitterness, and here's what I mean, you only keep something around if it serves you. And bitterness serves because what it does is it excuses you from a lot of life. And it gives you all these reasons to be all about you, to isolate, to do your own thing, to have no accountability because you are justified. So you hang on to that for dear life. Otherwise, you're going to have to be just like every other humble servant of God who has to acknowledge their own weakness, their own part in the problem and connect with people and be part of the answer. Let me ask you a question. How is the Lord Jesus different than Naomi? If anyone could justify being bitter, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, folks, 33 years of a sinless life, listen to me, invested, sinless, loving, other-centered his whole life. And what does he get for that? What does he get? He gets everybody at the end, abandons him. One of his best friends betrays him, sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. The spitting the lies, the slander, the false trials, the false arrests. And get this, we're not done. His own father forsakes him. God the Father forsook him completely. Jesus called 911 on that night and he got a busy signal. For the first time in eternity, God the Father forsook him And is he bitter? No, what the sweetness breaks forth and he says on the cross while his own people are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. How is it possible when God forsakes you and gives you a winter in the garden of Gethsemane to not grow bitter. It's because he knew by faith this is going to go good. I know him too well to doubt that he has any ulterior motive. The Lord has caused me to be bitter, made me miserable. Jesus knows the truth, and that truth set him free from bitterness. Let me close with this idea. Exodus chapter 15. They come upon, they're they're journeying through the wilderness to the promised land. They come upon a, a, a pool of water and the pool of water, they go to taste it. It's bitter and poisonous. 
They can't drink it. So they called the place Mara. Same word. Moses gets a word from the Lord and he says, throw in the tree. The tree is the same in the Greek and Hebrew for the nickname of the cross. Take this cross and throw the cross in the pool of bitterness and the waters become sweet. How is that? (laughs) Well, when you start thinking of the beautiful love that Christ responded in the face of what should have been great bitterness and grief, that all of your pain and suffering and those who injured you and all of that goes on the cross and that by the mercy of God, he's gonna forgive you for every little sin you ever committed. You start to just say, I gotta let that all go and replace it with the love and the gratitude that God brings. I'm gonna go from Mara to Naomi (laughs) instead of Naomi to Mara, amen? You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.